All the all the Trotsky guys are weird. Did you know Jim Cramer, the CNBC like money man? He was uh, in the Spartacus League uh, in his youth. Really? Oh, I did not. Like one of the one of the hardest, hard, more hardcore Trotskyists. I feel like the the Trotskyist to conservative pipeline is just like pretty short. It's pretty short. (laughs) That's what I keep saying. If anything is going to make me a arch capitalist, it's going to be being in socialist alternative. (laughs) Well, fucking, uh, it was Christopher Hitchens was a Trotskyist, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, James Burnham was too. He's the founder of the American conservative movement with uh, William F. Buckley. Co-founder of the National Review was a big Trotskyist. And it's no wonder, he probably thought he took a hard, he did a U-turn or whatever, but he was confused at first and then he was confused again later. It wasn't a big change. Um, I have a cool book about James Burnham, (laughs) Exit Right, about all those guys. Mm -hmm. And then there's like Irving Kristol and stuff too. There's a bunch of them. Yeah. Mm. But I mean, what are we we talking about today? We're talking about 18 million millionaires. We got we got eighteen we got two on deck here eighteen million millionaires and then Adam mentioned this this raging Twitter debate <laughs> about uh, mom and pop versus Walmart the, yeah the grassroots revolution one of the dumbest one of the dumbest fucking debates that I've seen raging on it's been going on for like a week now I think many, it's, how, I think it's finally starting to die count? down but it's it's awfully it's I mean it's stupid but it's awfully illuminating yeah yeah for We're, sure. Yeah. We're bringing Twitter beefs. That's right. That's right. We're going to settle um, this once and for all. I mean, I, th- I think this conversation is important in a way of like what the political beliefs are now, not necessarily the particulars of the morons on the internet arguing about. Sure. Mm. But yeah. I love, but, um, I love, but I love the morons. reason that we the reason that our society runs so smoothly as smooth as it does is because lots of people in this country are doing really well and that's something that i think a lot of people on the socialist left ignore for various reasons they ignore because it's self-incriminating because as we all know most socialists are from very wealthy backgrounds and they you know like to exaggerate on a personal level about how poor they are but also <laughs> it, cre- it creates less of a compelling vision of our country and and it makes the crisis seem more closer if you say everybody's doing bad, but that's not the case. A third of American households bring in over a hundred thousand dollars in the past. Since uh, 1989, there was 1.6 million millionaires. There is now uh, over 18 and a half millionaires. Like a lot of people oh. are doing very well in this country. And that has like psychological effects from everything. It's going to create people believe in it because everybody knows someone is doing really well, like really, really well. And I think right. the left. So in- my question is, with this being the, the, the conversation, what is more important, 18 million millionaires or 18 million porn stars? <laughs> <laughs> how many of those million, how many of those 18 million millionaires are porn stars? Two. Yeah. Like, the answer is the answer is 42. Yeah. Yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide <laughs> to the Galaxy. Yeah. <laughs>
I mean, I don't think there would be so much. I don't think porn would have been able to grow the way it does without the rampant inequality and subsequent alienation we have. Hmm. Yeah. Elaborate. I think if we lived in a, if if we lived in a society with uh, more of a commons, more of where you're around people more, where you're less alienated from everybody else, or you're less competitive, people wouldn't uh, seek to fulfill their you know human sexual desires through internet abstraction. Mm. They would have sex with people in real life. Yeah, I was mm. actually just I was just reading I was just. Uh, there was an article today about how in South Korea, people are, the students at college are being required to take mandatory dating classes where they have to, they're required to date their classmates mm. because the <laughs> country is dealing with a, um, basically a crisis of low, mm. low birth rates. Mm. And of course, capital needs more bodies. We need to keep, uh, you know, generating, we need to keep reproducing in order for the system to re- reproduce itself. Keep and pumping that surplus value. Mm. And it's such, such a fascinating thing because of course no one dates there. And you know, they can't afford it, to it's probably. the same, it's the same thing as it's kind of a, a similar, it's an analogous to the incel problem, broadly speaking, which is that we've created a society of rampant sort of isolation and alienation and people no longer know, no longer know how to interact with each other because we're, mediated through, you know, various platforms. And on top of that, half the people spend all of their time trying to get ahead with their career or just mm-hmm. try to get by making rent or whatever that they no longer really have time for like a social life. So you're saying the cost of living is so high that it's destroyed the social sphere there. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. You can't yeah. The cost ahead. of living and the nature of work. Right. Yeah. Like a mm-hmm. uh, bunch of people getting fat sitting at a t- or computer screen all day. <laughs> I mean, it's not, and so they have to they have to get uh, points for a grade on a course. So that's funny, I guess. The way to re-educate them into um, wanting to have sex with each other is to uh, you run that through the sort of uh, PMC qualification of the college education. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> right. So the only way to get an A is to like, look, I know this is going to hurt, but you have to get laid this quarter. Or you're not going to pass yeah, this a, class. Getting an a, a is for ass. <laughs> a is for... B is for boob. For, for for boob, touch a boob. Or or balls. Or I balls, guess. yeah, I'll guess. Yeah. Oh, what the, uh, I'm, bring, I'm, bring, I'm bringing my cishet normative heterosexuality to this. It's really bad. Uh, well, I, I <sighs> suppose if they're trying to get people to reproduce, there is some heteronormativity yeah, built into it, the system yeah, right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So kind of with that, with like the atomization and people uh, lacking the interpersonal skills to get a date, it's kind of to the other point we were going to talk about with your Twitter beef about kind of the mom and pop shops. Mm. And I was going to talk about how if you want to have that conversation, we'll get into it later. Um, um, It's about organizing how I'm thinking about it. And I was thinking about why the, a lot of people are bad at organizing is because they're not willing to make themselves vulnerable. So it also goes into that lack of interpersonal skills, that atomization makes us less capable of, you know, making ourselves vulnerable, which is a big component to dating. And when you are out Mm. there and you're trying to get a date, you got to put yourself out there. Mm -hmm. There's different skills that are required and there's a certain Mm -hmm. um, 
sense of fear that you have to get over. And it seems like a lot of people in organizing try to certain circumvent mm-hmm. um, both the preparation and more importantly, the the vulnerability that goes into getting a date because it is it is something similar to that. Mm-hmm. So they tend to people tend to lash out at the fact that they can't accomplish what they want instead of making a plan to get what they want. Interesting. So you're saying, okay, so you're bringing out like the emotional dimension of uh, what's sure. They're, they're like politics shy or something. And you see that in the dating too. Well, everything's personal now. Yeah. You know, so well, yeah. let's, let's, let's step back for one second. Right. Okay. So we got two batters on deck. There's two, cool. there's two <laughs> sort of things that we want to talk about and we'll probably move back and forth between them and find ways to connect them and digress from them. But the first is Jesse, million millionaires. Yeah, Jesse's point, which he sort of already brought up, but it's something he's been wanting to talk about, which is the fact that America has 18 million millionaires. There's like 3000 billionaires, I think. Yeah. That's what I heard. Yeah. So, I mean, that's crazy, but 18 million, million, that's a lot of, it's a lot of millionaires. You know what I mean? It's probably more than most people would think. Mm. Um, And then the other thing, which is kind of, we find ways to connect up to it, which has been an ongoing kind of online discourse beef um, that I find to be completely mind numbing and very odd, but like Jesse was saying, very illuminating. Also makes perfect sense if you think about it. Right, right. Which is this sort of idea of like, um, does the working class, should the working class um, basically identify more or support uh, this sort of mom and mom and pop small business? Or um, is it better to sort of consolidate capital so that you have a, you know, a more consolidated enemy. Basically, are you a bad person for shopping at Walmart and Amazon? But also, I mean, or I think- Are, you, also, are you a Marxist or not? <laughs> right. Yeah. But also gets into kind of strategic things, which is I've seen some people say, it's better to have capital be spread out across many small people rather than have it being consolidated among one monopoly. Yeah, I can't But then you have the kind that. of, then you have the kind of- um, um, so like, like Lee toddlers. Phillips Republic of Walmart book, that Jacobin book by Lee Phillips, the Republic of, People's Republic of Walmart, oh, which I've is which is basically saying like we already have the technology and the structure um, to in place to kind of um, institute a kind of centralized planned economy with Walmart and Amazon. I mean, so mm. if we nationalize those things, as it were, right. or were worker Let control, the then basically develop. you'd have. Mm-hmm. And so those are very those are two very different. Uh, ways of thinking about um, about the problem. My response is always like, I'm not really sure why it's better because the problem is that the discourse then gets, is it better to work for a mom and pop shop or a Does big business? Does it build power? So people will say, well, a mom and pop shop, you, you don't get benefits, but they, you know, they're nice to you and they're more likely to be whatever. And then, you know, um, with Walmart or something, well, you're more likely to maybe um, get a vacation mm-hmm, or you're mm-hmm. more likely to be able to take legal action if something happens, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Okay. So this is what we're going to talk about. One, right. two. Uh, okay. So 18 million millionaires, one, two, three, go. 18 million millionaires. <laughs> um, I think I, I, so I keep thinking about the 18 million millionaires, um, because it's like, there's so many things that have happened over the past 40 years that, and there's no like, and because of the rapid inequality that's been growing since the late 70s, like the beginning of neoliberalism, there's not a corresponding culture or anything to explain it. 
Um, but we deal with these problems every single day. Like I said, in 1989, there was less than 2 million millionaires. And so this is increased by all, increased by over 10 or over 10 times. And this colors the way that we all look at reality and it colors like, um, who gets to talk? I mean, I guess the fact of the matter is it does not make sense. It, it should not be that there's this many rich people. This doesn't make sense. And this is like uncharted territory. Um, I mean, it's the story of America in general from the post-World War II boom, having the middle class. Like capitalism is historically understood as like Marxists should have never been able to guarantee such a high standard of living for so many people. And now, so we had a bunch of people doing all right. Now we have a bunch of people doing fucking fantastic. For a third of this country or maybe a quarter, this country is paradise. It is heaven on earth. And we have to talk about that. The 99%, 1% thing totally misses the fact. Yeah. Um, the fact that the fact of the matter is we all know lots of people who have, who have lives that are far too good and <laughs> any move towards a just society will hurt them. And people are afraid of that. And because a lot of the leftists are the people who will be hurt, who will not be able to have someone walk their dog every day, who will not be able to have their groceries delivered, who well, will not be able to have things delivered. These things are this level of luxury and convenience that we're expected due to the rampant inequality is incapable of a just society, cannot be done without hyper-exploitation. And people need to, like, people are really afraid of degrowth stuff, and I understand why, but there are way too many people who live unrealistic standards of living that are not sustainable in any way. Well, let me just sort of counterpoint that, I guess, uh, straight out of the gate. I mean, I I don't want to live in a world where I can't have strawberries from in the winter from some place where they have to be long haul imported. And I, wh why can't everyone have a dog walker? I mean, we don't have to make anyone's standard of living worse, do we? I mean, I take your point. I take your point, but the idea isn't to like make things correspond to a certain way of life. The point is to like, look at, um, the aggregate, um, system of profit production in a capitalist, uh, society and see how that produces power. And I would, I mean, you tell me, you've put a lot more thought into this than I have, I think about the 18 million millionaires, but I remember at one point, and now the math isn't going to be right anymore, but at one point I tried to, tried to picture the so-called wealth inequality. And I think it was something like, I, I tried to do like, imagine every dollar of your wealth is a second that you live or something like that. If if your net worth is a uh, hundred thousand, you um, you're really young when you die. You're a baby. If your net worth is a million, you 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 die as like a, in your twenties. If your net worth is a billion, you die in your your thirties. And if your net worth so again every dollar is a second you live. If your net worth is Jeff Bezos's net worth, which is around two hundred. Some, somewhere around 300 billion at the time, I think, or no, wait. I think it's 180. 180, yeah. He lives for 1,400 years, so 1,400 and something years, mm -hmm. just to put it in perspective. So a millionaire will still sort of die a premature death, but Jeff Bezos will live longer than any human being who's ever lived. And so it is curious, 18 million millionaires, that's a, that's a, that's a healthy middle class would be a euphemistic way to put it. Right. But- that's still a fart in the wind compared to, pardon me, but uh, for in comparison to the billionaire class, the 3,000 billionaires. 
Yeah, but you're not like, so I, I understand. And if you look at inequality in those terms, like based on numbers, uh, you know, median income, everybody says middle class, but it's nuts. Median income for a single income earner is $33,000. So mm-hmm. that's what middle class is. Middle class is a household that brings in 50. So like we have to, the idea of middle class is usually like yeah. uh, slang for double median income. That's what people think is middle class. But so that is the case that someone who's middle class, $33,000 is in a similar boat with a millionaire than they are with the billionaires who have such unbelievable wealth. But in order to sort of take down this monster, history's greatest monster, American capitalism, um, why on earth would the millionaires unite with the people who have so much less? While they are relatively poor compared to the billionaires, they still live a life of splendor and paradise that is unimaginable for in the entirety of human history. Um, they are not going to unite with the people who bring them their food, the people who cook them their food, the people they walk their dogs, because their entire lives are made comfortable by this uh, servant subproletariat that is the new labor, that is the new gig economy. These people are not going to give up their giant houses to live in small places. So like there, there is a, a huge distinction between someone with uh, $33,000 yeah, sort of the million. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's an ocean and... Like, well, you need everyone, like you need, you years need, of income, but you know it's a smaller I mean? difference than the difference between the millionaire and Jeff Bezos. Well, and, here's I, and the I mean, thing. the question you asked, I'll, I'll cut it off right after this. The question you asked is the million dollar question. Huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> why would those people throw, throw, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Why would they unite with, the, so why would the professional managerial class, the very well-to-do PMC, uh, align with the lumpen basically. Well, I mean, they are. So I'm not saying the question's irrelevant. I'm saying it's all the more important to answer it because if you look at American politics, the millionaires who are the loudest shouting, um, um, progressive liberal voices are precisely in an alliance with, you know, sub proletariat precarious people. So I'm not saying that's not an important question, but I'm saying it's happening and it would be good if we could answer it. So what I'm thinking of is um, how much of that income is, you know, surplus income. So how much of that income? So how much isn't being recirculated into the economy based on these 18 million millionaires versus these uh, 3000 billionaires? And the idea that I'm going with is if you have this income that isn't or this capital that isn't being reinvested into the economy, mm-hmm. um, how many services are sacrificed? So do you necessarily have to give up your delivery service or your dog walking um, because there is um, capital out there mm-hmm. that can be brought into those um, enterprises mm-hmm. that isn't because these billionaires have this um, capital that is not being reinvested into the economy. So that's kind of um, one question of where they align and then another, or not question, but one statement. But another uh, data point to go with is um, basically that just because you have a million dollars doesn't mean there aren't parts of your life that are still uh, precarious. That meaning that Healthcare is still a problem. You can still go bankrupt from healthcare debt, even if you have a million dollars. There's still parts of your life where you can become the transition from being one of those 18 million millionaires, depending on what type of millionaire you are, 
bringing you back into being one of the lumpen is still a possibility. And that's where we align, where for a billionaire becoming part of the lumpen, you know, becoming proletariat is impossible. So two things are what part of the 18 million millionaires is working for a wage, which would make them part of the proletariat. And how close are they to a bankruptcy, you know, caused by um, some of the capitalist industries bringing them back into Mm. the proletariat Mm -hmm. um, or more so back into it where their lives are as precarious as everyone else's. Yeah, Um, it's interesting to think about because um, I think about this like I worked for I worked at a record store for a long time when I was an undergrad. And this was like, a you know a guy, he just like kind of opened it up himself in the seventies and he'd been, he'd had it around for 30 years or whatever. And, you know, he, by all, I, I mean, I, by all intensive, per, intents and purposes, I think he, he was a million, he was probably a millionaire, you know, probably not much more, you know, he wasn't like a multimillionaire, but like he, he probably had like real assets or liquid. Well, I mean, that's the, the question, store, right? The I mean, like, does he have a million dollars in the bank? No. But or in his house, given like his house, his property, he mm-hmm. he, he had in assets certainly worth okay, so more than a million dollars, right? And and so like he would be one of those eighteen million millionaires, um, but like at the same time, like a lot of that probably could have been taken from him, and if he hadn't, you know, because he was existing at a time when the you know he got really wealthy in the eighties and the nineties mm-hmm. during the sort of. Uh, cassette CD boom, right? Mm-hmm. And then digital mm-hmm. technology comes and nobody's buying cassettes anymore. Out. And he had a few years where I think he was really struggling, struggling, I mean, comparatively speaking to people who actually struggle, okay, I get that. But he was definitely at the risk, I think, of having to basically give up his business if he hadn't made the decision mm-hmm. to basically switch to vinyl. And mm-hmm. now he basically only sells vinyl because guess what? Everybody wants vinyl again and he's, he's doing okay for himself. But that is interesting because that isn't the sort of, you know, when you just say, when you just say millionaire, Mm -hmm. kind of like what that is was saying, I think there are different types of millionaires. Mm -hmm. There are like a lot of small business owners, for instance, are quote millionaires Mm -hmm. because they have in assets and et cetera. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, and, and I think they are in a, I mean, they are in a different position than someone who just inherits a few million dollars and is like kind of living off of it, mm-hmm. who has like that money in the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Right. That's pure liquidity right there. Right. And then mm-hmm. your boss, your boss, for instance, so he had what he's got two big buildings, one in Finley, one in Bowling Green. Right. He's got a home. He's got inventory. He had a vacation home too. A vacation home. So he's got mm-hmm. all these real assets. He probably has very little liquidity. I bet he's paying payroll. He's paying for the inventory. Mm -hmm. And I, so cash probably isn't that high. And I bet you, if he, let's say 2006, if he decided to buy another building when asset prices were inflated all the way up there, and then, um, he he doesn't have that much cash coming in, but he's got a lot of real assets. He buys a place in 2006 when the asset prices are all inflated, Mm -hmm. then the economy crashes. No one's buying anything. He's got to pay liquid. He's got to pay cash, the money, like liquidity for that uh, mortgage he just bought before the economy collapsed. So in the hypothetical situation, Mm -hmm. and it's not coming in. So because he doesn't have a lot of cash coming in, they might take his real assets. You, so he could go, he could go bankrupt, even though he's a, he's a billionaire on paper with respect to real, uh, a millionaire, (laughs) with respect to real assets, 
it's not like he's, you know, what was it? The, um, DuckTales, the uncle. Yeah. Diving in the pit with the gold. Swimming in the yeah. gold coins and stuff. Right. Yeah. It's all real assets and it could be taken away if the economy takes a bad turn. Yeah. This is, which is not to say I like have a lot of sympathy. Right. Right. Yeah. No, of course not. I mean, he was still a small business owner who exploited us and never wanted to give us a raise or healthcare or benefits or anything. Right. And, and that's like kind mm-hmm. of interesting where the two things kind of overlap, which is like, there's this weird fetish among some on the left for like the small business owner, mm-hmm. you know, oh, as yeah. being like, I mean, it's just weird reactionary shit where like they don't like the alienation of Walmart, which of course, mm-hmm. fair enough. I don't like Walmart. Walmart fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't find it any better to be exploited mm-hmm. by some quaint mom and pop shop. I mean, they, our boss used to loan us money because we couldn't afford to pay rent. And of course, you, have you to know what I mean? Like the irony of that was fucking Did like- Did he charge you interest? No, no, he never charges interest. Uh, and he was like a really cool guy, right? You know, he, he was, he, he oh, I was, bet he was cool. He had a record store. Right, exactly. But at the end of the day, like his role as basically a small business owner was to extract as much mm-hmm. surplus from us as we, as he could. Um, all right. Uh, so, so we, so I feel like the, I just muddied the waters maybe no, it's or something. Okay. We've I don't thrown know. up the critical, let's say the resistance to this. So millionaires aren't as bad as billionaires. Imagine the difference between a million and a billion, yada, yada. Sure, sure, sure. But on the other hand, now let's flip it the other way, maybe. Um, so the difference between a million and a, and, and 180 billion is pretty vast. Right. But the difference between 3,000 and 18 million is also kind of vast. So 3,000 billionaires, I mean, it's a lot more millionaires. Um, what is that? What kind of like wall, I guess? I guess that would put up some kind of obstruction in American politics to have that many so- millionaires. Yeah, it 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 makes everything impossible. I think that's um, what this is. I think that's Jesse's. Yeah, Jesse's my, my, point. Yeah, yeah. My point is that it makes everything impossible. Like that, it 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 renders it renders uh politics like irrelevant for the time being. In a similar way as the uh, formation of the middle class um in the post World War II boom had such an unprecedented bounty that was able to, in conjunction with the Red Scare, but I would argue a lot more in making everybody shut up and go to work, was the fact that they were rewarded handsomely for going to work. They were able to raise families on one income. They were able to have homes. They were able to have pensions. They were able to send their kids to college. These millionaires are profited very well. And and yeah, we can push them to shove. Like, Sure, if they had cancer, they could go bankrupt. But... I don't think, and I think they're a lot more conscious. I think these 18 million millionaires are a lot more conscious of an income group than any worker. And we see that when it comes to zoning. And when you see that it comes to mm-hmm. anything that comes up with home ownership, these people are like, these people are like bleeding from the mouth fascists when it comes to zoning. And if you look at a city council meeting in a city about adding uh, low income housing or even affordable apartments, let alone a fucking uh, homeless shelter or a rehab center. Watch how political they become and how much they're able to act in unison. They yeah. are able. They are able to form a very cohesive block and to stop everything. So, and I think they make the decision that um, forsaking my humanity to keep my home uh, to keep my home to be so worth so much money is worth it, right? Like they they are turning mm-hmm. their backs on the human community because they want their home to continue in value when they resist homeless shelters. And this mm-hmm. isn't like this isn't the same thing as like a white working class guy being a bigot cuz that doesn't that mm-hmm. aside from personal instances where if he does a hate crime then it matters. But his mm-hmm. opinions don't fucking matter, but these millionaires have the power to stop homeless shelters. Right. It does yeah. matter and it does have consequence and these are real 
political actions. So no. they're not scared. They're not scared of losing their homes because of health care. They're not. And if they were, they mm. would have voted for fucking Bernie Sanders. <laughs> they would They would not, because these are the people, I worked on the Bernie Sanders campaign, and I knocked on a lot of houses, and I knocked on a lot of these houses, and these people do not fucking care. You can tell them about all the suffering. You can tell them about whatever's going on in the world. They don't fucking care. They don't care one iota. And we're not, and my argument is, we're not going to make them care, and... I mean, and this goes into a way bigger thing that I've been talking about with my roommate a lot lately, that the American worker is like, n- does not have a lot to do with production, like anymore, by and large. Right. Oh, right. Well, and, it's an unproductive economy now. And, 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 and the production the American worker does is building a new store, building a new strip mall, mm-hmm. right, which, right. which does not have any of the, you know, worthwhile qualities that Marx envisioned capitalist industrialization would. Like, this is meaningless, useless things that don't need to be happen. So, like, we have to think of politics in a different way. And I'm of, I guess this is a total, total kind of different thing. But I think we have to start thinking of things like the same way that they thought in Cuba or in China about how to change things. Because they didn't have an industrialized working class either, and we don't. And so these, these are going to be, I think the future is going to look a lot more like mass movements than directly tied to labor and production because we don't have leverage. We have an insanely large uh, like surplus army of labor that's going to prevent us from doing anything um, from any labor actions because they can always be substituted. Mm-hmm. And if they go on strike, it doesn't matter because that's not where the money's coming from. And these millionaires, mm-hmm. right. the ones who aren't small businesses, the ones who don't own mom and pa mm-hmm. shops, their money comes from real estate speculation. Yeah. Their money mm-hmm. comes from smart money moves. Money move, money move, money move. Yeah, it's all stock so markets. Where, like, what yeah. do you what do you fucking do with this shit? What do you well, do? And then and then like I guess and real quick to just round it out, my point and what Adam said is that I think it makes politics impossible is because there's so many people with so much money that have nothing better to do, and they shape the world that we live in. They're the ones in the DSA. They're the ones who write mm-hmm. current affairs. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who not only like you know, own the business I have to work at. They're the ones that give me, when I go to the DSA meeting, they're the ones who are supposed to help me fight. Like, <laughs> and that's why we have people worrying about buy erasure. That's why we have people arguing about whether or not Stalin was good. This shit doesn't fucking matter. If you mm-hmm. are, if you are invested in politics and a political agent to get a better life for you and your family, mm-hmm. you don't fucking care if Mao is good or not. Mm-hmm. You don't, right. but that's why the left thinks about this shit mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. all of the fucking millionaires. It's everywhere. They're everywhere and everything. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I don't know, I not totally fleshed out, but <laughs> I don't see people talking about this. And I mm-hmm. see people on the socialist left constantly say, mm-hmm. oh, it's like, no, no, it's like totally fine to be this level of wealthy. Like that isn't something that should be viewed with suspicion or anything because it's so prevalent in these communities in college, I'm guessing, I know Adam's in academia. Um, I'm guessing you guys are or adjacent in a similar way. Like the people you're around are going to have to get kicked in the fucking knee for the world to be better. Uh, I hesitate there, but I want to go back and uh, point taken though. Um, you, says, you said something that that is also sort of alluded to and I want to underline it. Uh, the question is how much of the 18 millionaires wealth uh, is actually being not only coming out of speculative uh, real estate, fire sector, financial uh, investments, mm-hmm. but how much of it is be, is being pumped into that? 
rather than being pumped into um, productive investments right. that employ people. Um, it's, just, it's just hoarding at this point. Well, did you see that um, it was just a big new, uh, Elon Musk is making millionaires of his close, his biggest fans or whatever. Did you guys see this article? Mm. That's you a know, political yeah, thing, right? There. Right, because his his stock, you know, Tesla stock, I mean, so Elon Musk has now become, I think, the second wealthiest person in the world or mm-hmm. third wealthiest in the world behind um, Bezos and- Jeff, um, Bill Gates. No, he's ahead of Bill Gates now. Oh, okay. He's Warren behind- Warren Buffett? No, no, no. The, uh, the Saudi guy. Mm. Prince. No idea. One of the princes, I think, <clears throat> is, is up there. Um, anyway, the point is- <clears throat> You know, they they profiled some guy who he's like 32 years old mm-hmm. and he, you know, like a few years ago, he just put all of his savings, which was like 10 grand into Tesla stock and he did nothing with it. And now he's like a millionaire mm-hmm. because the stock has gone up so, mm-hmm. so high. Mm-hmm. And when you really think about, when you really think about wealth, I mean, it's really just magic shit. It's crazy how that, uh, how it works, right? I mean, like... Isn't there an ICP song where the guy says, uh, scientists, magnets, magnets how, how, the, the, how, how does that work? Yeah, how do they work, yeah. Um, uh, fucking science, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, really think about that. I mean, it's, it's, it's um, like that, when you get to that level of wealth, it often comes from these mm-hmm. sources of speculation that are really just like, it's just like, it's not productive work. Mm-hmm. It's speculative. It's investment. Well, it's Rontier stuff. It's just, right. it's just parasitism. You're just getting a slice of other people's profits. It's insane. Well, okay. Here's a little speculative. Money moves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would venture to say something that, that would be something like the way racism has been used. Um, so like, let's say in the. So before the dawn of neoliberalism, because I think it gets sort of spun dice different ways after neoliberalism, but basically you give poor whites some privileges vis-a-vis poor blacks Mm -hmm. and you use them as free extra judicial law enforcement that you don't have to pay. You get the extra labor, they get the benefits of exercising their sadistic inclinations because they resent wealthy people or whatever. Mm -hmm. So they take it out on others. Um, so you get this sort of like basically security force, right? And I would say like probably for someone like Elon Musk, who's just, I mean, at that level, what's a million dollars? I remember, what was that guy who ran? Well, anyways, finish this thought. Um, he could afford to spread it around a little bit to create a sort of basically political security force. These people who have stakes in it. Right. Now they love Tesla. They're going to defend Tesla no matter what. And they'll be agents and they'll speak on its behalf and they'll, lo- they'll lobby in whatever capacity. Yeah. And uh, who is that? Who is that billionaire who ran for president as a Democrat? Steyer. No, the other one. Bloomberg. Stock market guy. Bloomberg. Yes. He oh, was, yeah. he was, um, he was just hemorrhaging money, millions and millions. And it just didn't even take a dent out of his wealth. Right. He was no. giving people $60,000 to do this, to do that. Yeah. There are all those stories of people who would just do other shit while they were getting, taking money from him. Mm-hmm. Cause there was no mm-hmm. oversight at all. He was just throwing money at the, and he, he didn't have a campaign. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they had organizers, but they weren't doing anything. They weren't. He just so what did he spend on his campaign? He's, he, he spent like, what was it? Um, I forgot like 5 million of his own money. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and or no, it was more than it was like yeah, I think it was a lot more than that. Five hundred million, something ridiculous. Yeah. It doesn't even matter. But the point is that during when he started his campaign, he was worth about fifty-two billion, mm-hmm. and by the time the campaign ended, he was worth sixty billion. Yeah. So it doesn't even matter how yeah. much of a dent it's making because he's making that money while that while that's happening. Mm-hmm. Well, and it so was it was actually it was a brilliant. I mean, kind of in the same way that Daniel was just saying with with. With Tesla and Elon Musk is like you have a vast army of You're like a little militia. Well, and I mean, he's taking advantage of the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic when people have no extra income, they're mm-hmm. struggling. He's giving everyone money basically to keep them tied up. I mean, effectively to kind of avoid any kind of other kind of mass pitchforks, right? He's any other kind of mass movement. I mean. I mean, it's obvious his whole it's his, it's obvious that his whole campaign was an attempt to delegitimize and uh, it was successful. Take, take the take the take the uh, the wind out of Bernie's sails, and it, mm-hmm. you know, and, it and even of, Elizabeth Warren too, and it, it, it worked. Oh yeah, it worked. The reason he was successful. The, re- the the reason Bernie's campaign fell apart is because after the first few states, which we all won we were all laid off and they put all the money in ads because mm-hmm. they were spooked by Bloomberg. So we didn't have people on the field. We had volunteer only staff all over the country and volunteers can't do what we did. That's why we lost. That's the biggest thing. And that's what all the things don't get because it's all out. It's all out, outside baseball mm-hmm. talking about why we lost. We lost because of Bloomberg and we lost because we were scared of ad money. And um, kind of more interesting going back to the idea of 18 million millionaires. And when we're talking about power, what is the DSA at right now? 85,000 members. Something like that. So yeah, you're roughly talking about 85,000. Now there's 18 million and plus 84,000 millionaires. God damn it. (laughs) Exactly. So you're talking about um, more millionaires with the interests of millionaires versus 85,000 socialists with the interests of socialists. So when we're talking about the money aspect of it too, and we're talking mm-hmm. about power and the ad buys and the being a, him being able to buy volunteers, Bloomberg. Um, so when we're always talking to people about organizing me and Daniel, it's like you have two sources of power. If you live in capitalism, you have people mm-hmm. who are the source of value, who create value. And then you have, you know, capitalists who hold the value so you have money and you have people so you have to have enough people if you don't have the money Mm -hmm. to circumvent that money power that capital power Mm -hmm. and what we're seeing is that we absolutely don't Mm -hmm. if there's 18 million millionaires with those interests Mm -hmm. we don't have the people power Mm -hmm. even to fight those 18 million millionaires let alone the 3000 billionaires because they're just going to be able to, to buy far more than so 85,000 people. So hang on a sec. What you're basically <laughs> saying is that the billionaire class has bought off the most, um, has bought off the most ambitious career oriented segment of the managerial class has simply bought them off sort of in macroeconomic terms so that they have 18 million people on their side to defend their fortress against the rest of the population. And, yes. and, and we, we, we don't, obviously don't have the money on our side, but <clears throat> that sets the bench, benchmark of what would count as having enough people on our side. Namely, it's 18 million. We need a party of 18 million uh, working people just to break even with the, the amount of people that they have effectively just bribed into supporting them. That's what you're saying. Is that right? 
functionally, yes. And, uh, and more. Okay, I never thought of and, that. And 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 the existence. I yeah, I agree completely, Thaddeus. And I think to build on that, um, the existence of eighteen million millionaires is a prosperity that's so prevalent in our country that everybody's around it. That like, especially all of us college, or I'm guessing we all went to college here. We mm-hmm. all know. We all know some of these eighteen million people. So like. It creates uh, it it creates this scenario in which like people who maybe have a hundred thousand dollars are again going to see their interest with the millionaires rather than the thirty three thousand because they know these people and that wealth doesn't seem impossible. There's so there is mm, such yeah. widespread prosperity, like magnificent prosperity in this country that it completely colors how everybody sees the world. And if there's this many people we know that are doing well, then it individualizes failure in a way that obviously capitalism always does, but in a, in a really big way now, because there's so much wealth all around that you're just not getting in on it. You fucked up. Like the reason you're poor, like Mm. this guy, like this guy put fucking $10,000 and you, what you put, I put $50,000 into a bachelor's degree in 2010. (laughs) And this guy put $10,000 in Tesla probably around the same time. And he's now a millionaire. So it's, it it Mm -hmm. is, it is within reach in such a way that it, Totally colors like what people think of our well, and system. Honestly, and also those 18 millionaires, their kids are communists now. But it's also <laughs> cognitive failure to think. I think that, I mean, it's ideology, false consciousness. I'm perfectly willing to accept that old crude view, which actually tries to explain something. Um, it's a cognitive failure though. I mean, okay, so you make $100,000. You, you believe that your interests align with uh, millionaires or billionaires. Well, that's just wrong. I mean, I saw another figure the other day um, said if, if uh, so financial wealth, I think, yeah, we're divided equally among every citizen in the United States. Everybody would make $350,000 a year. So just straight up leveling in this country, like some nasty Soviet style leveling, like you all mm-hmm. get the same or whatever that everyone's afraid of. If we did that, I mean, for most people that would, that would mean about a, $300,000 a year increase. Even more. So that, that goes to two things. Um, so f- first thing to what uh, Jesse, right? Yeah. Um, what you were saying about the proximity of people to these millionaires, it's kind of like if you're looking at a Bernie Sanders program or the Green New Deal, you have to think about it in terms of the numbers. We're employed by these 18 million millionaires and these 3,000 billionaires, which means that our income, our livelihood, thirty the average $33,000, let's just give the number, comes from them. So you have to offset that with these programs. Are you going to be able to give me $33,000 and, you know, net gain from, um, you know, Medicare for all and from a Green New Deal giving me a better job or taking away my energy costs? Are you going to be able to do that? And kind of to what Daniel was saying with um, if we were to just, you know, um, appropriate all of the wealth, the financial wealth, uh, reappropriate it. um, Everybody would be getting like one hundred and fifty thousand is what you said. Three hundred fifty thousand. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So basically, that is more of a sell than Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. If you were to put it people like that, because guess what? I'm coming up on three hundred 
thousand dollars rather than just this piecemeal reform that only gives me the uh, the equivalent of like ten thousand dollars while i have to put in jeopardy the thirty three thousand that's how it's framed i have to put in jeopardy the thirty three thousand that comes from my job for this ten thousand because the job creators are going to take away my job Mm -hmm. so i have to put that in jeopardy um in order to get ten thousand dollars versus if we were to just reappropriate the financial wealth, if that was the tact, if that was the message, you would be saying, oh, you're putting that 33,000 in jeopardy in order to have the chance to gain Mm 300,000. That's a different message. Mm -hmm. Um, And the 18 million millionaires are going to be in the way of that message. Mm -hmm. Um, And right now they have the power to pump out the message. That's that's the also the question of power. I mean, this is the PMC topic we talked about the time before last, and the, everyone's talking about. And it's I think it's important to get right. One important thing. I, wh- one I way, see you making your gr- diagrams here. Love it. Um, <laughs> so I just sort of sublimate my paranoid conspiratorial uh, yeah, energy yeah. into um, yeah. perfectly rational conceptual schemas. Yeah. Um, There's always some new thing up on the wall when I walk in this fucking yeah under the I love Hegel magnets. Um, yeah. So imagine you've got like the deepest, darkest, innermost layer of a castle, right? It's a tiny little blip on the map, the territory. You've got the billionaires. It's just a little, little dot, Mm -hmm. the billionaires. And then around the billionaires, you've got a circle. That's a castle protecting them. So they're basically a castle in a castle, a little castle in a, in a medium sized castle. So the little castles, the billionaires around them is another castle protecting them. That's the millionaires. And then around them, you have another city wall. And the city wall is the six-figure PMC, let's call them. So we've got basically a fortress in a fortress in a fortress. The outermost fortress is the six-figure PMC, which maybe maybe just, you know, threw their exhausted body over that $100,000 hurdle. And they feel like, oh, I finally made it because... Well, they're college professors. They're whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Well, whatever. They got it. And... uh so they're the outer guard, and then the inner guard is the 18 million millionaires, and then the inner, the seventh level of hell is the billionaires. And then outside of the moat, you have 60% of the population who are workers, who live on, I don't know, between ten dollars and $50,000 a year, probably, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Um, now, check this out. A friend sent this to me recently. Um, it's an article from, about, from a newspaper in the, on the East Coast, those elite... East Coast Coast liberal types. Um, It's about um, group wants to promote town diversity. Oh, this article again. This is rich. I have to. You love this article. Well, it's just so honest. I would never, I'm not used to liberals being this honest. Yeah. A group of Hingham residents has formed a yes in my backyard, Mm. YMBY, YIMBY group to encourage families of color to move to the overwhelmingly white coastal town. Longtime Hingham resident Paul Cappers said the organization, a play on not in my backyard, NIMBY, grew out of his men's group at Hingham Congregational Church, but has expanded to include others in the community. Cappers said that unlike YIMBY groups in other cities and towns, the Hingham YIMBY is not focused on promoting low-income housing, but is instead aimed at increasing the town's racial diversity. Hingham, a town of nearly 25,000 people, is about 96% white, and the median home in, uh, home value is approximately $742,000, according to the U.S. Census data. Quote, 
we're talking about people who can afford to live in hanging (laughs) (laughs) and letting them know that they are welcome, said Cappers, who is also white. Um, oh, that's fucking beautiful. On its Facebook Fuck page. Cappers. <laughs> yeah, let's find this fucker. <laughs> on its Facebook page, the group says it is, quote, dedicated to encouraging real estate purchases by people of all races to live in the wonderful town of Hingham. We have a proud tradition of many things. Our organization is eager to add a greater diversity of culture and race to our wonderful, proud community, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I bet you are in your, you know, you, know, you got a gated town with a private security force and you need to immunize yourself against criticism by showing some uh, culture quotas. I mean, that's what we're talking about with the moat. Yeah. I think. No? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like, I think these people color all of our reality and their, and their kids are the ones who run leftism, whatever that means in the United States. They're, uh, well, yeah, they, their, their kids grow up and they're mad at their parents. They resent the fact that they're wealthy. And so they need to find some way to perform. It's LARPing. It's like perform your authentically true radical self, mm-hmm. you know, and you become so, a trust fund yeah. socialist or whatever. I'm from a small town in Montana um, that when I was in high school, I mean, I grew up uh, poor in a small town in Montana, but a relatively affluent one. And I, I was often lonely in my economic class, in my friends and classes. Um, from my hometown, that's about 30,000 people. I can count over five like communists from backgrounds that I know, like uh, my ex-girlfriend whose dad owns a lake. Um, this kid <laughs> whose dad's friends with Rahm Emanuel. Um, a couple other kids who I know are fantastically wealthy, who had no predilection towards rebellion in high school. Um, and in the 10 years since they're communists now, <laughs> and there's something really fucking stupid and fucked up about that because these kids are not going, if they meant what they were saying, if Nathan Robinson meant what he was saying, these people would spend their money to go salt. These people would spend their money to make risks towards organizing that working class people can't, and they would put their money where their mouth is. But no, we have since 2016, we have a socialist industry. You see these people, mm-hmm. you, you can see these people on TV. If you look at the right places, you'll be seeing a lot more. You can see them in the New York Times, Baskar Sankara. Uh, I'm pretty sure pays himself uh, around $80,000, $90,000 a year with the Jackman Foundation. Um, that doesn't go people, very far the, in New York, probably. Oh, God. I lived in New York on $35,000. Again, <laughs> again <laughs> leftists need to stop saying that having double median income is not having that much money. That is quite comfortable, even in New York City. Um Sorry, anyway, this is this bothers me all the time. Someone told me on Twitter the other day that a hundred thousand dollars in San Francisco is poverty. Um, well, no, 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 I'm not even going to entertain that. We'd um, have to look. This is a question there's, of there's, fact. There's uh, the median income in San Francisco is about sixty thousand, so it's it's well over median, mm-hmm. and the people struggling are making less than that. So making almost double that is is nowhere near struggling or suffering. Um, mm-hmm. But furthermore, like these people color our reality, and their kids. Because, and and my thesis, my rationale for the reason these kids are radical now is because it's undeniable that the world is hell right now. The the problems are undeniable. Um, Everybody's alienated. Even these rich people are alienated around them because, you know, if they live in a city, they have to walk over homeless people to go to work. They have to, everybody's surrounded by suffering in a way that you haven't been in America in a long time. Um... And so what are they going to do to solve that between their value of themselves and the suffering they see around them? They're going to attract themselves to the most radical thing possible. 
that is bad for those of us who wish to create a working class politics because the working class politics isn't ultra radical. Working class politics is not the weirdest thing you can think of. It's <laughs> not idolizing Stalin. It's not idolizing right. Lenin. Even That's these guys who who I mm-hmm. ha- who I will have positive things to say, but I don't think you should view historical people as good or bad. I think that's foolish. But that's why what we have in radicals, and that's why we have these arguments. That's why we have PMC versus not. I know that I know people who hate the PMC so much, and guess what they are? They're PMC. Yeah. Like yeah. all like. Even 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 this argument that I generally agree with, I hate these fucking computer d- dickheads as much as everybody. Even the arguments around them reflect a politics from people separated from the brutal exploitation mm-hmm. that defines the reality that a lot of us, myself included, as someone who's been working in restaurants who grew up to a junkie mom, I'm doing all right now. I'm on the top rung of that, but I'm still there. And it colors <laughs> it colors what radicalism is. These 18 million millionaires have kids who now color what politics ostensibly opposes them is. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is my thesis. There is, mm-hmm. there has never been like on, you know, and once again, not to conflate Twitter, the real world, but it's not very hard to find on Twitter, uh, countless people who are like, I don't know, they're like gender studies people, or they have these just bizarre niche interests that we're supposed to believe are jobs or they're journalists that we're supposed to believe that David Cleon is writing enough articles to pay rent in Brooklyn. I'm not a fucking idiot. I know that's not the case. But these people exist in such big numbers mm-hmm. that they are coloring the reality and they're even coloring what could be an opposition. Mm-hmm. I got a story. So, I got a story to relate to that. Hold on. Let me, let me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me I want daddy's, I got we got to go back. Because you said wanted to say something earlier too, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, I've got a, a story to go with it. So this is when um, um, I was trying to organize and um, I talked to a guy and I was like, we got to do something. We have to make a plan because we're stagnant. And I don't, I don't, I don't get what we're doing. Oh, in the organization. And, the, uh-huh. In the organization. the organization. And I was, I was saying, we need to come up with an idea of interacting with the community. I was like, maybe all of us volunteer for charity. And maybe that's a, an end to talk to people about politics who are in a, the community. We need to become linchpins in the community in order to communicate with people. And, um, I'll make it short because the punchline or the rebuttal that he gave me is he said, what would it look like if a white guy went out and just started preaching to people what they should do? And my response to that was not a white guy, a white guy who's part of the community. That's the point of building (laughs) in the community. Don't preach. The kicker. Right. You're not preaching. You're going there as a part of the community and you're just someone that's reliable. That's what your, your white status, whatever you want to call it, or your money can do is if you're actually a part of these communities, you can make it work for the community. And that was kind of the point I was, I was trying to convey. And what was even funnier about it is we live in Logan square. You know, he does. And I live in Hermosa which would be a little bit harder because this is mostly Hispanic. Mm -hmm. People speak Spanish here, Mm -hmm. but he lives in Logan Square. So when he's talking about a white guy in the community, Logan (laughs) Square is 50 percent white. So (laughs) he is. He's just unreliable. He is the key demographic of that community. What you're saying is that we can only do (laughs) politics if we build relationships, if we build power, because politics is action. And if we're reliable for people, they'll they'll work with us to do things. And what he, right. his mm-hmm. deep down, his, his animal instinct is aware of the fact that 
you know, these people in these organizations are deeply unreliable. And so no one's ever going to rely on us. And so that's not going to work. And it's also, it's also indicated by the fact that he assumed that you were talking about going up and standing on a street corner and reading Das Kapital volume three to people. Uh, no, what you're saying is we, we work with the people and we build trust so that things can be done on a local level to do pol- political actions and about things that need to be done. Not about preaching, obviously, but it's just right. so out of utterly out of touch. And it also goes to a point, uh, a thing you're always saying, Daniel, what I got the sense out of them with this, what does it look like if I go out as a white guy preaching to people is he's trying to, um, you always say, you're trying to um, build your muscles before you lift the weights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When the idea is you have to lift the weights to build the muscle. Mm-hmm. And he's missing that point. Mm-hmm. Before you preach to people, you're going to have to build up the relationship. Yeah. You're not just going to be able to come in with the relationship ready mm-hmm. made mm-hmm. so you can communicate. Yeah, you can't. That's, that's what I see coming out of there's you know, also what kind Jesse of a is funny, talking about. Uh, there's also kind of a funny inverse white privilege thing where he's like, wait a minute, I don't want to do work. How do I get out of doing work? I'm white. I can't talk to people. That's, that's, that's right. not fair. That's, that's a white savior like thing. Fair. I'll let you guys take care of it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, hey Sheba, how you doing? <laughs> um, yeah, there's another one. Um, so I want to relate to what you said, Jesse, uh, something I heard about recently, there's a bit of a sort of uproar among the lefties and I'll keep the short cause we got to switch to, to uh, a batter two has been anxiously waiting on deck for a while now. Um, people are upset about with this Vasquez thing, um, with this guy got endorsed by the DSA and then he voted for some budget that helps cops more than the left wants. And so everyone's pissed, yada, yada. Well, in the whole context of this, um, outrage, I discovered from some people in DSA, the problem is very close to what you're saying. Usually people say that DSA's problem is this, it will help get people elected either through endorsements or lending uh, feet on the ground to get their campaign message out, Mm -hmm. knock doors and so forth, uh, talk to people. It's not only, and then they can't, and then they can't hold these people accountable once they get elected and the people inevitably do some standard Democratic Party crap and then they're off the hook and they're well on their way to a career in the Democratic establishment. That's not the only problem. What I found out is that like you're saying, these gatekeepers to American leftist politics, the 18 million millionaires, um, I mean, a lot of them are Trump supporters. They're not all, they're not all in the DSA, but, um, no, not all millionaires are in the DSA, but everyone in the DSA is a millionaire. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, what happens is this, if you want to run for office, especially in Chicago, if you want to run for office, it's not good enough. It's not good enough anymore to be a Democrat. You got to be a you got to be a socialist. So you got to do DSA if you want the young vote and so forth. So this is what happens: whatever money you get together um, for your campaign through contributions and so forth, that's basically going to pay the living costs of the leadership of the DSA. So it's so because you're going to hire them for your campaign. So. Whoever runs as a leftist in Chicago pays the paycheck of the leadership of the DSA. And so they exercise indirectly uh, top-down influence over the DSA. So, so it's not just that the DSA gets people elected and can't hold them accountable when they betray their so-called principles. It's much, much worse. Um, the, the leadership of the DSA and therefore the, the direction that it takes in general is completely dependent upon 
jobs in campaigns mm-hmm. by so-called leftist politicians in the city council um, elections. And of course that money is coming from contributions and so forth. So, so that's just a good example of how the DSA through no, through no ill intention of any member, because I think most rank and file members of the DSA, they're not even in caucuses. They don't even have a ideology, but the organization really depends upon these little jobs and campaigns of careerist um, politicians. Yeah. And so you can't bite the hand that feeds you, you know, you can't bite the hand that feeds you. And like, um, having, I'm so, like I said, I'm a working class fella and I've worked in politics. I was a one interest, one thing, uh, similar to what Thaddeus was saying earlier. I was a labor organizer for fast food restaurants in New York city. Um, like basically, basically five for 15 New York specific called fast food justice. And I, you know, I'm this like uh, scrawny white kid who, um, you know, plays music and stuff. And they sent me into the Bronx to talk to, um, to talk to fast food workers there. And I did very well. And it was very, it was, it was incredibly insightful and empowering for myself. And I love doing it. But they asked me like, how did you do so well? We were kind of worried because, you know, I wouldn't see another white person all day once I got there. Um, but it was like, well, because I work in restaurants and my mom went to jail when I was a my mom got torn away from me, went to jail when I was a kid. We have a lot more in common than our skin color sets us apart. And I'm able to communicate mm-hmm. that. And they're able to realize that like what I think white left wing people don't get is that I don't think I, white people assume all uh, rich white people assume every other white person is rich. And I don't think that's the case for black people. I, mm. at least in my personal experience in politics, that's not the case. Um, but white people say that even though 75% of the bottom fifth of households and wealth is white, even though most poor people are white, your average white leftist will assume that their privileged white existence is indicative of whiteness and not economic uh, yeah. prosperity. Yeah. Um, which then colors when they talk about privilege and stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyone who talks about white privilege stuff in a, in a socialist context should be laughed out of the room when there's such widespread suffering and the plurality of American workers work at Walmart, mm-hmm. most of whom are white. If you're going to say they have privilege, you can go fuck yourself. You have no, you're not working towards any goal I am. Um, but as far as the campaign jobs go, I've I worked on the Bernie campaign. I've worked on other campaigns. It's impossible. I got two grand in credit card debt to work it because these jobs are only for people who... These jobs are only for people who can afford not to have a job. Like I worked on the Bernie campaign and got two grand in debt to move up to New Hampshire. And I came back and I was mm. a week later working for $8 an hour. Like I wasn't able to mm. hold out to look for another job. So these, by nature of these jobs, because they're so short term, only wealthy people can do them. I did this one to personal disadvantage because I had to. It, I had to do every single thing in my power for my mm-hmm. sake to get Bernie Sanders elected. Mm-hmm. Um, but it came at my disadvantage. But no one else I worked with did it come at their disadvantage. They went back and looked for jobs for two months and found something mm-hmm. or yeah. it wasn't the need. So like the whole way we look at organizing and campaigns is wholly skewed towards these 18 million millionaires and their kids because they're the ones who can afford to do these jobs because mm-hmm. these jobs do not pay right. good. Uh, the Bernie campaign, love the guy, the job didn't pay enough for me specifically to do it. Um, well, so it also only, can't go on only, forever. It's not really a job. Yep. I mean, yeah. yeah. Doesn't, doesn't that also expand to politics at large? Because the only kids that can afford to be interns for free yeah. are the right. kids of right. yep. wealthy people. That's the, the only, class nature. Yeah, the only people who can be interested in politics or who can be political subjects are the 18 million millionaires and their kids. 
our task, our task as socialists is to understand that. And I think, and the thing that I have the biggest problem with, and I'll end my uh, segment <laughs> here on this, the biggest problem I have with the 18 million millionaires and what we have as a left is that because the left is so many of these people that there's so many blinders when it comes to saying this. And when it comes to the realization, I, I leftists don't like to be told they're rich, even though they are. They like to say they're normal when they have two parents who both went to college and they own a house. They like to mm-hmm. say that was normal growing up. That's not mm-hmm. normal. Well, that's just um, middle-class mendaciousness. Right? Yeah. That, you know, middle-class yeah. is $50,000. So I mean, I, so I don't, I mean, middle-class um, the way that people like to think they're middle-class. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's a, middle-class as a class, not just as, you know, uh, um, an assessment of, you know, median wealth, you know, what's the median um, salary. Um, you're not, at, you're not, you're still, you could have um, 70% of your population or 80% of your population not be middle class. The yeah. class that's in the middle is just the class that doesn't have the power to be mm-hmm. oligarchs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have a class that's the upper class that are the oligarchs of society. Mm-hmm. And you have the middle class, which are the patrons of those oligarchs that, you know, patronize the rest of or the us. guardians. Like, yeah. Or the guardians. Like Jesse's saying, but okay. So I'm sensing this, <laughs> Jesse, what you're saying is. It would, we'd all be better off if these well-meaning liberal progressive rich kids would just be honest Republicans, go back to their party and clean up their own house and leave socialism to the the working people. Yeah. Or, or if they want to be social. And I mean, it's, you know, it's ahistorical to expect the socialist movement to not have these people. We have Engels, we have Ho Chi Minh, we have, uh, unfortunately we have, uh, it's, 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 it's as much of the socialist movement as one of the workers. Um, but what I would like to say, what I would like to hope is that these wealthy people, if when, what I would like to see a socialist movement that pressures these wealthy people that come in to say, well, you're wealthy, so you have to go work in Amazon Fulfillment Center and you have to do a really good job and you have to work really hard and gain the trust of your coworkers so you can organize. That's what you have to do because you're socialist. You don't get to have a podcast. You don't get to, mm. you don't get to have a magazine. You don't get to write articles. We don't, we don't, you don't, you don't get to have people know who you are. If you care about this stuff, you have to be infantry. You do not get to be a colonel. And I wish that we had a socialist movement that was strong enough to stand up to these people that wasn't primarily composed of them so that they can be used in a useful manner. I really like the idea of forcing them to go to work. Well, that- <laughs> I like that too, but I think more important, you said something earlier, Jesse, which was basically something everyone knows in America, put your money where your mouth is. If you don't want to do shit, if you, don't, mm-hmm. if you want to do that editorial job, if you mm-hmm. want to do uh, discourse peddling, then you only get to make- off of that influence peddling and whatever else you generate goes to organizing those factories. Anyone, because they may not have the skills to organize that factory, because like you said, Mm -hmm. you were successful on the Bernie campaign because of your history. You know, you worked in fast food restaurants, you know, you have your history with your mom and everything. So you're more effective. I don't want those and you know influence peddlers in that position because right. they won't be effective right. but I do want their money right. to yeah. make you yeah. more effective right. I want you to have their money That's so you can maximize yeah. your efficiency agreed yeah. I, yeah I started to worry when it's like okay rich kid now you've joined the priesthood of leftists now you have to go suffer like a good ascetic I mean there's enough of that kind of 
cult-like inward-facing behavior on the left that I would get really worried about it getting religious. But I feel like we have covered this. So why don't we talk about mom and pop versus Walmart? Because Twitter that, beefs. Twitter, let's Twitter beef sec- Let's segment. bring the dinner rolls. <laughs> uh, so well, I, what the fuck is that? Well, I don't remember exactly how it started. Um, I mean, I think that I mean, could like, like the discourse is a, it's a strange beast. You know, it's like you, you, you're swimming in it and there's no beginning or end. You're just like, all right, this is what people are fighting about now, I mm-hmm. guess. I don't think that there was some sort of generative like article or something. Cause sometimes this dispute. emerges from like an article that someone publishes a bad take or whatever. But basically you, you know, the whole discourse is produced. I think uh, some of the worst, uh, sort of symptoms of like virtue signaling where you get people who are like, you know, trying to say that their, their opinions matter more because they're more authentically left than someone Mm -hmm. else. You get this kind of weird reactionary fetish of like small town mom and pop familiarity, which is just like identifying with these people on a personal level. Like they're nice to me you know, Bezos is a monster. Of course he's a monster. Like that's kind of beside the point. Um, and so, you know, and then, and then people are saying, well, it's better to work for a mom and pop shop than it is for, how can you be a communist and shop at Walmart? And it's just, it's like the whole discourse feels like they're injecting it all with these weird moral claims about what's better and what's mm-hmm. worse. And it's like, no, this is about economic relations. Economic relations are objective. And it's what not works about like, is a question wh- of fact. Right. And so it's not about whether you like it or not. Like, sure. Like, yeah, I yep, would yep. rather work for my boss at that record store just on, on an immediate level. Cause it was a fun job. But That's an illusion. The but, immediacy of experience is by and large, just an illusion. And that Im- lived experience but, or whatever people fetishize these days on the left, that is just like, that is just like a sack of lies. Like it looks like the sun goes around the earth. It looks like the earth is flat. You know, in, like, this, in this argument, the small business owner versus the big business owner, um, what a lot of people are saying and what like the point of contention was is a lot of people claim that uh, in the event of a political mobilization, uh, you know, not towards socialism, but towards, I don't know, some sort of like populist, like, welfare state or something that working people would have would be could side with these small business owners against the big business owners and in the context of covid where all small businesses are closing down um and i think that's the sort of contention that's disagreed or disagreed um my take of all this shit is it's fucking stupid it doesn't fucking matter because it doesn't matter if you like small businesses or like big businesses we live in capitalism and it and it exists in a certain way and it serves historical function. Mm. If you're a socialist, you believe, or if you're Marxist, you believe that capitalism is necessary to industrialize the world to give us the tools mm-hmm. to liberate all humanity right. from toil. Right. So like so capitalism and, and I think that's a lot of people, they're like anti capitalists in this moralist way. Where I'm anti I'm 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 anti capitalist because it has it's done. Like it 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 no longer serves a function. We need to move on from it. Mm-hmm. And so the argument about small businesses or big businesses doesn't matter if you like small businesses, buddy. This mm-hmm. is capitalism. They're going to be usurped, mm-hmm. especially in times of crisis. They're not going to continue to exist. Right. The Amazon is going to usurp them just like Walmart did in the wake of NAFTA, destroyed mm-hmm. the middle of the country. 
That's going to happen with Amazon and cities. That's just the case. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. But what does matter is the way that you think about it and where your sympathies lie. For you, if you, it, this is going to happen no matter what. Amazon's going to get small businesses. But yep. if you're out there fucking copping for a small business, that's going to make me double think your allegiances and priorities. That sympathy is indicative of what mm. you think about politics. And what it shows is that these people, many of whom claim to be even more Marxist than the leftists or who whatever, it shows that they, first of all, do not understand the historical function of capitalism. They don't understand what it is. But second of all, their sympathies are with exploiters and small exploiters. I've mostly only worked for small businesses. They're hell. Once again, my personal experience doesn't matter. But wage theft is rampant. Uh, yeah. Undocumented employment is, uh, you you know, paying well, people assume- $4 an hour is, so, is a small say- business thing. So it doesn't fucking matter. But let's so not let me ass- say this... Yeah, it's 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 also a question of, of organization and uh, power. Like you were getting at that the argument is that these small uh, businesses have been put in a precarious situation. They're shutting down, so they're on your side. They're feeling the they're they're taking on the burden of this crisis just like regular people. That's the argument, and the solution <laughs> that they're offering is that don't buy from these big businesses, buy from these small businesses. But my question with that has anyone brought up in this argument? the ask like okay we're trying to organize we're trying to build power so again we have these small businesses that are put in this situation that's largely negative because of the crisis which makes them have common interests with us but what are we asking of them in order to alleviate that that suffering that they're feeling right I mean, barring the economic question, right? So what I'm going to ask you for, I have to know that if we are going to, you know, give you money basically by shopping at your, 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 your shops, your businesses, if we're going to give you money, you're going to have to use that money to get money in the hands of working class people too. You're going to have to organize with us. And I don't see that ask all the time on the uh the the left what it seems to be is oh if we stop buying from amazon and we buy from mom and pops they're just going to realize intuitively that they're on our side that that that's just going to naturally happen which is the laziness which is the lack of putting yourself making yourself vulnerable because if you lay it out for them what your real goal is is socialism and you tell them in order for us to stop your business from failing in the interim where we have common interests, you're going to have to give us a piece of your business. You're going to have to give us some of that money to organize for the working class. Because when you ask that question, you ask them, if you make that ask, they're going to say no. Yeah. Because they know that the second ask is going to take their whole business, not just save it. It's going to be gone in in the, the, if they build power in the working class, if they help in that endeavor, the working class is going to use that power against them eventually, mm-hmm. naturally, if you are a socialist. That's what you're going to organize the working class to do is to use that power gained from those small businesses against those small businesses, which means if you make that ass as explicit, they're not going to do it. And I don't think the dance of trying to go around that ask is going to get you anything from those small businesses. You're just going to extract wealth from the working class and put it in the hands of the small businesses. Then you have, again, 18 million people in opposition to you <laughs> rather than the the 3,000 in opposition to you. 
Yeah, I think these people who are saying this, they can identify more easily with a small business owner, I think. And so I don't want to make it too psychological, but it seems to be that what they're expressing when they say this is they prefer direct relations of personal domination. So they'd be happier in feudalism, let's say, than advanced capitalism, than, than, um, than a functioning complex system. Uh, that capitalism, in fact, is. So what I see is, you know, I remember living in Belgium and Germany for a while, and you had all these good domestic uh, middle-class types separating their glass and their bio tra- biological trash and their glass and everything. You separate the trash because, you know, we have an ecological crisis. And so they'd freak out if you didn't separate the bio trash from the glass or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's just some obsessive neurotic little compulsion. And they, they flip their lid if the person next to them doesn't do it. That's ethical. That's a sort of attitude of ethical consumption, obviously. But I think the people who are saying this also have the attitude of ethical consumption, namely like the correct view to hold is to shop at mom and pop, not at um, Walmart or Amazon. But that's not a theoretical understanding of capitalism. Monopoly, monopolization of the sectors of capital are fate. Yep. Merchants, yep, yep. merchants, capital, commercial capital. So wholesale retail that will be monopolized industrial capital that will be monopolized finance capital that will be monopolized. That's the developmental tendency. And if you're just trying to roll back the developments of capitalism, right. that is petty bourgeois reactionary socialism. Exactly. Mm. The only place I would, cause we need that development, human productive capacities and technology only develop through that process. And so I think they're disavowing the political struggle and they're displacing it onto a moral plane mm-hmm. where they're like, bad you. Well, it's the um, same, it's the same argument that people of, uh, make against I mean, the antitrust PM. is not going to bring this to a head. It's going to make it last forever. But yeah. just, yeah, just very briefly. I mean, like that's the same thing they do oftentimes with the PMC where they, they, they make it a moral thing, which mm-hmm, is like, right. it's bad to be PMC or Ooh. something. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry, Jesse, I, go ahead. I don't think capitalism is done, though, Jesse. I would only disagree with you there. I think there's more, I think, more development to be done, of course. But, um, but yeah, I think the I think well, I think the industrial there are the on um, I think like Africa and parts of Asia and stuff in South America that are not industrialized need to be industrialized. But I think in the con like in the global empire imperialism world we live in, that they're not going to be given the ability to in industrialize on their own they're like what we see in happening in places like south america their economies are oriented towards cash crops and stuff which are not sustainable and are not like in line with like say the development of capitalism in america Mm -hmm. where people live so i think imperialism sort of puts them in a perspective to where they're not afforded the luxury of actually being able to industrialize the mm-hmm. same way that we were. Right. So I don't think, and I mean, I, I don't know, maybe this is something I've been thinking about a lot. And I don't know if it's silly or stupid, but I kind of think that uh, capitalism served its purpose in like the third, or not thirties. Cause we got like the interstates and shit, like the fifties. I think we should have just stopped then. Like, and I think, and I think by missing the, and, and part of me thinks that, the window for politics is passed because I think, and I mean, this is entirely like unfounded. Like I haven't investigated these ideas that much, but I kind of think that at least in terms of Western capitalism and especially America that we're most familiar with, I think we reached like a productive capacity that could have let everybody live pretty good in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And we missed the boat because of the new deal in the post world war two global mm-hmm. monopoly on manufacturing allowed us to buy the working class out in a way that no Marxist would ever thought. Um, 
think by missing that, we have whatever the hell world we live in now, which seems both uh, incredibly exploitative and scary, but also seems more stable, seems far more stable than American capitalism at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. Seems way less likely we have a revolution now than we would have in the 1930s. So part of me thinks the window is closed. Like capitalism uh, didn't stop at creating, didn't stop at creating the productive capacity for freedom. Now it's in our heads. Now it's how you meet a girlfriend on the algorithm that well, someone makes money off of. Phase. It's in the financial phase. Now. Yeah. It's in the financial phase, but I mean the enclose. I guess that, here, that's where here. the money comes from. But the, the enclosure, the rid of the commons, like the atomization and the commodification, is now everything. It's all of us. It's every part of us. It's everything we do. Mm-hmm. It's down to our fingernails, to our hearts, to our brains. So part of me thinks the window of politics has passed because we capitalism has progressed far beyond any necessary productive capacity. And that's why we have this confusing world that doesn't make sense that is also incredibly stable. Yeah, well, the I old think he's right yeah. on, 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 on that. I think that idea is very akin to how racism functioned in the early world, right? So you had this mm-hmm. system where you, because of the virtue of someone's skin color or ethnicity, you decided we're going to enslave them, right? And then slavery reached its peak where it was, you know, uh, economically viable. And then you had a shot at the end of slavery, right? You know, 40 acres and a mule. We're going to give you your civil rights. We're going to have do all of, all of these things for you. You had this shot to end racism as far as an economic concept and, you know, uh, how it was generally negative to all people. You had a shot, but then it became ingrained culturally and, mm-hmm. you know, most specifically in America. And I don't know too much about colonialism in Africa, but it became ingrained in the American system and the American psyche. And then you couldn't get rid of it because it served an emotional purpose rather than just an economic purpose. So you I understand missing that window. But also to that point is that I don't think you can you can miss the window for capitalism in a regional sense. But we're seeing we talked about this um, a little while ago about how we are seeing the left in the United States seems to be primarily just rebels without a cause. They're 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 LARPers. They're rebels without organ without organization, without a plan, um, without a plan. And what we're seeing is that you have rebels with a plan when you're talking about, you know, the 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 um, the South. Right. The South of the globe is what I mean. The South of America or the South of the United States and the global South. You have capitalism affecting them in a way where it can't maintain itself. It's able to maintain itself here, like you were saying, Jesse, because of the 18 million millionaires. And it has fulfilled those promises of making more people wealthy. And it's still fulfilling those promises because we offshore the misery of capitalism, the precarity onto the global south. So if you are talking about a socialist movement, maybe it has passed its window in the United States. I, I don't know. That's yet to be seen. I don't think you should stop trying. Um I can but, stop trying, but I don't think it's possible. If 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 you are going to organize for socialism at large, I think the idea is to build markets in order for the global south to start taking control of the revolutionary aspects. We're going to have to be the builders of, you know, the 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 capital, 
but they're not they're not allowed to create markets though like the way that imperialism functions in capital flowing from the third world they're not allowed to have markets they are totally in our domination exactly that's what i'm saying just raw materials that come here that's what i'm saying right but i i think though if if we know it's impossible then i'm out because i mean it's a romantic it's a it's a fool's task uh a fool's errand or whatever, a romantic sort of self self martyrizing spectacle. If we know it's impossible to try to do it anyways. I mean, I would say, I, I don't quite agree with this stuff. I would say this, maybe you call me optimistic. Maybe you call me pessimistic. Um, I think capitalism is still the future if we're lucky because <laughs> surplus value production mm. is getting strangled out more and more by financialization. And so neo-feudalism, we talked about this before, neo-feudalism in some ways is more uh, probable than, than, which is worse and more probable, I think, than even capitalism. And I think capitalism would still be more progressive because I think there's still more development to be done. <clears throat> and socialism is an outgrowth of that. But yeah, I mean, it's true though, Jesse, I agree. Um, the way global development works, basically industrial productive labor goes to the global South. And then you have unproductive circulation labor here, consumption, financial stuff. Um, and then, I mean, I think that can explain a lot of the troubles with organizing and the left here. I mean, basically you've got lumpenization, um, which, you know, you get these, uh, easily disciplined, uh, circulation workers who work in retail or whatever, or advertising, it's all unproductive labor. And they don't identify with productive labor because they aren't productive laborers. It's not the same situation as America in the 1950s. And so you can't do politics the same way either. And so all of, I mean, you join some leftist organization, a bunch of Trotskyists or whatever, and they still act like it's 1955 and we're going to get together and we're going to shut the factory down. But they don't notice, you know, if you're organizing stop and shop workers or teachers, I mean, first of all, with teachers, you're not interrupting capital when they strike because they're paid out of state revenue. That's not capital. You're not shutting down capital. And and with stop and shop workers, like, okay, you're all fired. There are people lined up. What do you think you're doing? This isn't a this isn't an ind- independent film we're recording here. This is this is you know these people get paid minimum wage. Like, it's a lot of LARPing. And Thaddeus, I think you put it really well. You said what was it? LARPing with? Oh God, I can't remember something. I said organization um, without a plan is LARPing and organization with a plan is revolution. No, no, no. Rebellion with a plan is rebellion with a plan is revolution. What I think, um, I mean, I still think there's, I don't know. I would hope there's still a political possibility. Um, Part of me thinks that it's not, but I do. I think that if there's a, that's the thing that just sucks about thinking about politics in America is because like workers like, don't really have leverage anymore. They're not, we're not really necessary. Like we're not, and there's, and there's a surplus army of labor. So any movement will have to be some, I mean, I don't know what it'd look like, but it wouldn't look like a labor movement. I mean, Mm -hmm. we could shut down the Amazon factories or the where distribution centers, but they're just going to find so many more people, especially Mm -hmm. where I, I live in Philadelphia. And the minimum well, wage here is seven dollars and twenty-five cents, <throat> and the Amazon fulfillment center, forty-five miles north of New Jersey, pays fifteen dollars an hour. So, like, if everybody there got mm-hmm. laid off, they would not—they would have mm-hmm. people driving two hours to do it because in the city you can get paid eight dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's also um, kind of I see the whole well the the movement's going to have to change because 
The other part is, is that in our financialized system, there isn't a lot of liquid capital. It's not like there's not value production. So I think what the movement is going to have to look like is um, debt strikes. It's not you're going to have to organize people around their debt because you have it's more now. But last I checked, one point five trillion dollars in student loan debt. (laughs) Imagine if every student was able to organize and just say, yeah, I'm not paying that. Mm-hmm. There is no one who can fire them to stop them from paying. Uh, it. Well, right. they they could they can take it out of your yeah. But paychecks. what are they going to take? I mean, they, I mean, exactly. These people, uh, these people. I mean, it's it's a new. It's we're in a new situation. I mean, yeah. The most vulgar Marxist thinks no, there are workers and the bosses. Duh, duh, duh. But I mean, I'm afraid not because 150 years have passed since Marx's time, and even in Marx's own analysis, you've got three three fundamental classes: the the landlords, the capitalists, the workers. Each one of them is broken up into subclasses. You've got industrial, commercial, and uh, finance capital. You've got productive and unproductive labor. You've got uh, managerial labor. So, I mean, what we've got now, let's say you've got $150,000 in student loan debt and you can't find a job because you're overqualified. And, okay, so you join a debtor's union like, uh, what is it called? There's this thing, um, the Debt Collective. So you all coordinate. You all say, we're not going to pay. And they're like, we're going to garnish your wages. It's like, well, I only get $7 an hour. You can't. Um, and not just that. If you're garnishing the wages of that 100 and, what, $1.5 of debt, however many people that are, you've just radicalized the whole political block. Right. That's how you start getting over that hurdle of we don't have, we have only 85,000 socialists against 18 million millionaires. If, econ- if, if identity politics will ever work, I think it will work in that case where it actually takes an economic shape, where people are radicalized by their by their so-called identity, which is actually to say they're radicalized by the way they're getting fucked by the economy. And that's, you know, that's what socialist politics was always meant to be. It just, this, we're in the financialized Mm -hmm. stage of it here. And I think, you know, this is really important um, with the topic like mom and pop versus Walmart. I mean, I come from, you know, I, I relate to the mom and pop thing on a personal level, but we have to be able to abstract from personal experience and think about the system that causes all these things. And the problem is with the, the leftists, I think, as you're pointing out, Jesse, like their own ideological tendencies due to their the class position, basically, they're just making altruistic demands. They're placing demands yeah, on working abol- people. Abolish the police. Yeah. Or, or yeah, re- defund them and give, you know, what they're saying is like, you working people need to make more sacrifices for the cause. It's like, whoa. Whoa. Yeah, the way what right. is the cause? The way the, the, the way cause, yeah. the cause is improving the life of working people, and you know what? You're never going to succeed if you don't actually do it because people don't have time for that bullshit. They don't want to read Trotsky and they don't want to make sacrifices. If you can't make it better, then you're right. not going to succeed. Yeah, there's this idea, and I think it's because of the like class nature of the left. There's this idea that working people have to already have ideological priors to be able to be saved right to be able to be political i think about that where is like my old roommate had this friend and he's this like worse one of the worst people i know he's, he claims to be, i don't know i should not talk to trash <laughs> this it, person um this <laughs> person totally- says they're this person says they're a music journalist which i know is not a job i know you don't pay rent doing that um but they were talking about how you know they're left of bernie of course and they were oh. talking about um they're talking about how like the white white workers need to realize how they're perpetuating yeah. white supremacy before they can get socialism or whatever. And it just struck me <laughs> as like very indicative of what I feel, what I felt so much of the left is like over my whole life, where they think 
you know, this is a person who has never mm-hmm. like really worked and likely will never really work. Or if they do, it will be a comfortable PMC position or whatever. And they feel comfortable. They feel comfortable telling the people who bring them food, who mm-hmm. uh, make mm-hmm. their lives possible, the ones who, who toil and live in misery. He feels comfortable telling them mm-hmm. that they have to agree with him on social issues mm-hmm. before they are worthy of salvation. He, he relates that to them that way because disgusting. he's a manager. And it's well, that is, that is disgusting, kids, and it, but it, it's so prevalent. The kids can only have a cookie if they eat their broccoli, and you got to learn to swim before you jump in the water. <laughs> you know, another story I got was um one of my first job really doing construction. Like I had small jobs in between or before, and um I was working at a construction site on a vineyard. And they brought me on because I know how to do CAD work mm-hmm. and it made them it made basically it was just so I could generate renderings or, you know, drawings so that they could um, get a loan from the bank. And then they're like, yeah, we're also going to teach you how to build a, a, a building, you know, mm-hmm. so you can have a salary with this, too. And um, basically, one time we were on the job, I was there with this dude or let me not say his name. Um uh, with Jay, right? And um, I was there I with him. I can bleep it out. <laughs> Thank you. Because um, I, I like the guy. Um, and he was a weird dude. He was a libertarian uh, type of guy. And he would always say to me, don't you feel more oppressed that you're an intelligent person around all of these people? <laughs> um, and, and that was like one thing. He always kind of talked down to people on a political level. And we're on the job site. And uh, we're sitting down to lunch with everybody. And uh, this other guy, you know, I, I brought out my lunch and it was just like ramen noodles with chicken in it. And he was like, you know, what is that? And I was like, you know, it's just a, a little bit of starch with a little bit of protein. And of course, he did the gesture. He was like, oh, I got some more protein if you need it. And, you know, <laughs> Jay looked at him and he was he, he looked at him with like that, that disgust, like, oh, God, this dude is so vulgar. And I just started laughing right at, at the joke. And um. You know, later on, um, another joke, crude, we were in the car. It was too crude for him. We were in the car and uh, we were going to a bar after work. And usually I drove um, or, you know, one of the guys with a designated driver. And I wasn't going to drive that day because they were, you know, I was the youngest guy. They're like, yeah, we're buying you drinks. We're getting you drunk. And um, we were getting into my car. And um, I was like, you know, I'm the youngest dude. We were all big guys. And I was like, I'll sit in the middle. Right. Because I was the shortest guy. And they were like, nah, man, you can't sit in the middle because this is in Southern Illinois. They were like, if you sit in the middle, somebody's going to think we're trying to lynch you. So Ooh. we all, <laughs> no, we just started laughing oh, about see, that I see, too. I see, I see, I see. It was, it was like the realization of, yeah, the joke, like we know where we're at and, uh-huh. um, you know, and, and, you know, it's an old thing. And so we go to the bar and, um, you know, off to the side, one of the dudes is like, yeah, man, that's why we relate to you, because, you know, you kind of get where you get the jokes. And they're like the other guy. He just seemed like a college kid, you know, and that's kind of the differentiation. It's like I went there. And I always say these are some of the smartest guys I know because they turned a cherry picker into a crane and they were making filtration systems out of 500 gallon drums. These are very, you know, uh, very intelligent, you know, um, very intelligent people. And when we fail on the left to understand that the people in 
these that people in certain places they're more similar to us number one and they know better than us they're actually more intelligent in that space than you are and when Mm -hmm. we're telling them that you have to come to our you know cultural realizations before we can work with you Mm -hmm. we're losing the capacity to actually accomplish anything Mm -hmm. because they actually know better than you. Mm -hmm. They know that you don't have to, you can joke around, you can be vulgar, but the goal is to get some shit done. Mm -hmm. For us, the goal was to build a building. Mm -hmm. Jokes aside, we Mm -hmm. accomplished that. And then how we were able to do that is through the jokes, right? right? Because we have to work no, together. Building relationships. Because right. that's, that's, you know, I mean, and analogously, that's what needs to go on in the politics. I mean, politics is about taking and using power and building power. And building power means building relationships. And if you can't do that, then you can't succeed. And it seems to me, I agree with both of what you're saying, like com- uh, agreement in advance on philosophical principles or ideological ideas about, you're like, Making that a condition for the possibility of doing anything is, is a recipe for, for doing nothing. And, you know, like we can only be friends if, if you think Trotsky's cool too. Like if you like Nirvana. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. That's not (laughs) politics. That's not politics. That's just, that's just subculture or whatever. And uh, yeah, and that's inevitably what's going to happen when people are drawn to socialism, not because they want more money. Right. I mean, working right. people mm-hmm. should be drawn to socialism because they because want they more want money. More, yeah. Right. The cash money, cash money. Not because money moves, money not moves. Not because Trotsky had a cool beard or because yeah. like, you know, because you want to fight with the police. I mean, so again, I think as long as, I mean, I want to restate this, Thaddeus. Mm-hmm. Have I got you right? Rebellion without a plan is LARPing. Rebellion with a plan is a revolution. Um uh, and, and telling poor people to pay uh, high, top higher prices at local shops instead of being able to buy enough Christmas presents for their kids, even if you think that's vulgar, uh, at Amazon is not a plan. That's not politics. And right. it's not going to work. Nope. And then then when it fails, you know, they'll just wag the finger at the poor people again. But I mean, that's mm-hmm. how you can tell that they're in it for the reading groups and they're not in it for the organizing. Well, and I think the other thing with the small business... Amazon thing is it's it's even not even so much that maybe they would blame people for shopping at one or the other it was about like it got into these weird like which one is better not in the not in the sense which one is better to uh patronize or whatever as like a customer but which one is better for workers like is it better to work for a mom and pop shop or is it better to work well okay for let's a big address business that. right and you know, the argument of, and then they both get into these weird, um, the, the people who are kind of supporting mom and pop shops, you know, they get into like, again, these kind of weird, um, personal, it's all about personal relationships, Mm -hmm. right? We want, you know, they would say big business destroyed these communities and now Mm -hmm. there's nothing left. Mm -hmm. It would be better if there had these small businesses there Mm -hmm. where people got to know each other and there was, you know, because for them, I think, they're thinking about alienation in a psychological sense. Like mm-hmm. I feel alone mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. and it'd be better mm-hmm. if I had friends here or something, which, okay, fair. I think it would be better if uh, well, that were the case me- as well. But at the end of the day, it's sort of like, I felt like the entire conversation was really um, kind of beside the point. Well, it's like a high school counselor. Like, like how why do are you, you fighting feel? over this? Like, 
it sucks to work for a small business and it sucks to work for a big business. I mean, it frankly. sucks to Both work. fucking suck. They're thinking about it from the standpoint of the customer, not from the standpoint of the employee. It seems but to even, me. But even to the, the standpoint, I've worked, I worked for Walmart for four years. Big business, right? Yeah. I'm an architect now. I work for a small firm. And... You know, I worked with an electrician's, uh, 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 I worked with a large company that did um, electrical work. Um, and they're, they're generally no, not much different. I would say working at the um, electrical engineering firm was probably, um, if I wasn't a contractor at the time, it would have probably been better financially because it, like benefits were tied to the electrician's union. So the people who worked as, you know, like draftsmen also got health care like the electricians union got health care. Mm-hmm. Our, our contracts yeah. were negotiated the same as theirs. So actually working for the big business would have been better. Hey, <laughs> better. We, we got a we got a cat on the screen. And uh, but I will say, like what you learn working at a small business there is a certain type of empowerment because you're more relied on. You're more of an expert in a big business. You're not an expert as much as you are in a small business. Like at the, the, the company I work at now, I'm called a Revit guru, right? When I was just one among many at the, um, the, uh, electrical engineering firm. Mm-hmm. And what that says is I get paid less and I understand that they can only pay me less. My health care is much worse Mm -hmm. because there's only five of us able to negotiate for or whatever, 10 of us able to negotiate for that health care. So all of these things are worse, but there is more empowerment in the dynamic that you have that you're in closer proximity uh, power wise to your employer. So if I was to just say I'm out, then they have to hire someone with the same skills and the same training and the same understanding of how they do things. And that's a cost that they probably can't afford right now. So I could renegotiate a con, but also I so can't renegotiate a contract. So yeah, you, you feel, feel more, more important. important. You are more right. important right. and you're able to negotiate things outside of pay. Like, hey, I need more vacation time or I need my, my vacation time is extremely flexible. I can just pick some days I want to be off. No one's going to say no because they have to make those concessions in lieu of pay. Mm-hmm. So there are merits and demerits to both. And if we're talking about the dynamics of power in both, um, my proximity to the union gave me one type of power of negotiating a contract. And my proximity to the boss and the small business gives me another type of power in my own self-determination in a sense. But let's. Um, but which is better? I can't. Well, I can't say. Small, bu- small businesses are a lot more likely to let you get drunk on the job. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's 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 <laughs> that is not true. Nothing. My well, actually, what's funny is the record store. Um, the boss he he said that for the longest time he only hired people who smoked because he mm-hmm. didn't trust anyone who didn't smoke. <laughs> mm-hmm. I had some friends. Yeah, I I had these two burnout friends in Montana named uh, Sloan and Slade, and they (laughs) went and applied to a uh, like liquor store head shop. And the guy asked them, and they interviewed together at the same time. And the guy asked them if they smoked weed, and they said no because they, you know, just thought that was what Mm -hmm. you're supposed to answer. And they didn't get the job. (laughs) And then they, and then they went in a week later and were like, "No, we actually smoke weed." And he's like, "Oh, sweet," and gave them jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, that's uh, what liberté, galité, fraternité. Yeah. I mean, okay. Let's Mm -hmm. skip to the end and. 
let's skip to the end and just say, okay, you mom and you worshipers at the altar of mom and pop. I mean, I'd, I'm not hostile to mom and pop. That's I am. It's where, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I can relate. Um, but I mean, we shouldn't be thinking on a sort of personal ethical plane. That's what I mean. Plane. I said, we I should think be the, thinking the entire framing of the discussion frame. was wrong. And so, I mean, what is the end game scenario? What is the utopia, the ideal of these people? I mean, a republic of small individual shop owners where we all, all independent, autonomous, uh, autarkic producers and of, you know, petty commodities, uh, petty <laughs> commodities. Like, you know, co-ops. Yeah. I mean, not even co-ops. I mean, it'd be like, uh, it'd be like... Patri- little patriarchs, the guy owns the business and employs well, people. I mean, you can't build socialism with that. That's straight out of the 17th century. I mean, when we need, uh, we need operations that can, like, you can't build anything with that. You, you know, you got to build, you, you know, steel, cement. We need uh, information technology. I mean, if you're going to, th- you know, you we, we need big production. Production and circulation is already socialized appropriation isn't that would yeah, be the step I think, forward i think a lot of them a lot of modern socialists don't understand like what capitalism or or, or what capitalism's relationship to socialism should be well they're right? anti-social in fact and the in the no, they're, utopia they're, they're, of, they're, they're, they're anti-capitalist but they're not but they're not socialists but so a like, nation they of don't small see business it owners. as a they don't see it as, as a necessary progression they see the vectors of exploitation and capitalism and they are opposed to them, which is good. You know, we all are, but they don't see like how like capitalism needs to have happened. Like that. But, but a bunch of small, small business owners. Is, is in a, yes. It is inefficient. Is it? Well, it's inefficient, but it's also against the deeper socialization of the production circulation appropriation process. It's regressive. Right. And so you're not, it's, it, it's, it's antisocial. Really. It is in like a technical sense because, you know, Deeper socialization would mean, you know, deepening the networking of production, circulation, appropriation, and letting working people appropriate more of the surplus value they produce. But making everyone into a little small business owner, I mean, that's going to de-socialize the whole process. And right. so these people aren't socialists. They are, they're like Rousseau, Rousseauians they're, from the, from the early modern enlightenment. They want to go back to the Renaissance and the patronage of the Medici. That's Sounds like want. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Anti-socialists. So, I mean, that's what we're always saying is that capitalism is a component of just like any system where you're talking about a theory or a philosophy transitioning into another. Like you're not going to have evolution without Mendel. And after evolution, you're not going to have modern biology. You're not going to have the theory of genetics or not the theory, but the study of genetics without the study of evolution. So you can't say that because evolution is insufficient and it's incomplete, that it's evil. You have to say, we're going to take the parts of evolution and we're going to transition it to genetics. Um, Mm -hmm. And and then uh, a biogenesis after that, if we can figure out what that's about. Well, would there be um, biomedical technology in these people's exactly. little utopia of small business owners? What the fuck? How are you going to cure coronavirus in a nation of small business owners? You need massive, massive technological development. And you know what? The centralization process of capital is yeah, a condition for get, that. I dare those small business owners to produce how many vials of, uh, of a va- how many doses of a vaccine were produced in... Of you know a week's time. Yeah, or whatever. It's, yeah. That's that's a good that's a good that's a good point, Adam. That in time in a time of such generalized crisis and a time that's never spoken more to the need of like strong 
centralized power that people still retreat into fantasies of localism. Yeah, it's it's very it's very odd. And it's not even a serious option. It's never going to happen because I mean, yeah, exactly. They're going to the, the small businesses will be usurped whether you like it or not. It only matters where your sympathies lie. And they're all going belly up. The um <laughs> I this isn't I mean, I'm not saying that this is morally good. It makes me sad, in fact, because it hurts people. But if you can look at the macro level and just abstract for 10 seconds from your immediate feelings and experience and so forth, I mean, you see that that's the trajectory. And we have to stop trying to transform. We have to stop trying to look away from the political task that lies before us. Because all that all that is, I think, is saying, like, the more monopolization you get, the more concentration and centralization of capital get, the more the clearer it becomes that there's a political task in front of you, a political economic task. And I think when people do this, uh, saying mom and pop, not Walmart, what they're, what they're expressing is they don't want, they know that's a huge difficult task and they'd rather just do this sort of moral approach. But um, we have to look away from the small scale picture in which we, you know, eat, breathe, think, love, die, all that stuff. And we have to look at the macro dynamics because that's where, that's where the, the so action has to happen. That's where the money moves are. Um, <laughs> back back to money moves. I, I like uh, it. I I put I wrote and recorded an uh, an album, a rock and roll album, um, over the first uh, sort of couple months of quarantine. Uh, called it's like the band Psychology Machine album is never trust anyone with more money than you. <laughs> and it's on Spotify and Bandcamp and stuff. Um, we have a song. Uh, I, I, it's, I mean, it's just me and one buddy, but I wrote it all. I have a song. It's called Burn Down the Restaurants. Uh, I've worked at restaurants a long time. And one of my lyrics is, uh, the only thing worse than a customer is a small business owner. <laughs> <laughs> Misery. 